Alright, happy to see you today. We are going to begin a series of messages today in the Gospel of Mark. We just finished up uh, after, uh, the book of Philippians uh, a couple of Sundays ago, and I would like to begin today in the book of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark and uh, chapter 1. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you rarely get a chance, rarely get a second chance to make a first impression. A convenience store manager in Alston, Massachusetts, a few years ago, tells the following story. He says, I'm in the store office, and from the camera screens, I can see a young man shoplifting. I hit the record button. I'm gathering evidence as he goes around the store. He's putting things in his pocket, in his jacket pockets, etc. After he gets all done, kind of loading up his pockets with things, he comes up to uh, uh, the door of my office. I put the chain on the door before I opened it when he knocked, and he said, Hi, I'm, I'm Jason. I'm, I'm here for the job interview. And I thought when I read that story, I said, Well, you rarely get a second chance to make a first impression. Uh, and uh, he certainly did make a first impression, but not the right one, of course. Well, you know, the, the, the New Testament begins with four biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one of those biographies of our Savior kind of takes aim at their target audience. And the first sentences reach out and kind of grab the audience with an astounding truth, with a straightforward declaration, with some sort of challenge to think. And if you were a part of one of the target audiences in the first century, your first impression would be reading these Gospels. Wow, I'd better tune in and see where this is going. And so Matthew, targeting a Jewish audience, he begins his gospel with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Absolutely essential truths for the Jewish mind. The Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham and King David, so Jesus qualified. Mark, targeting a Roman audience, he begins his gospel at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God immediately drawing attention to the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity meaning he is God. Now, the typical Roman thought would be that Jesus may have been one of the sons of the gods, many gods with many sons, but Mark, of course, says that Jesus Christ was the son of the one true and living God. A Roman unbeliever might think, well, that's interesting, the one son of the one God. I wonder what this is all about. A Roman believer, however, of course, they would think, praise our Savior, he is the one true son of the one true God. Dr. Luke addresses his biography to a high-ranking government official and tells him that he has researched all the details and is writing a step-by-step -step orderly account of the, God, of the Lord Jesus Christ to this friend of his so that he can be absolutely certain of what he's been taught about the Lord Jesus. Great first impression to those in the Greek culture who were really into education and knowledge. This was Dr. Luke. Of course, you know Luke was a medical doctor. This was Dr. Luke's personal research paper on the Lord Jesus Christ with information gleaned from eyewitness testimony. And it's really quite a, quite a brilliant biography. The Gospel of John, he begins his evangelistic message to the whole world. It begins it with this bombshell truth. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Gospel writers each take aim at their target audience, but with a powerful first impression about Jesus Christ. By the time the Gospels were written, there were already a couple of other New Testament books in existence. The book of James and Paul's letter to the Galatian churches were were already uh, being passed around and copied. They were the two earliest New Testament books. They were written before any of the Gospels. The reason for that, of course, is that there were still many, many eyewitnesses alive who had seen and heard the Lord Jesus. And so there were plenty of folks around who could give testimony to the story of Jesus Christ. But by the middle of the first century, all of the eyewitnesses were, were, were beginning to pass away. And so it was crucial that the record be written down. And so the Holy Spirit selected the men to do that. Matthew, Mark, then Luke, then John. And they wrote their biographies of Jesus in that order. The very order that we have them in our New Testament. After the four Gospels were written, no other writings about Jesus Christ were ever accepted by the New Testament church as authoritative inspired scripture. All the other so-called Gospels, of which there are still some floating around today, they were never accepted as being real. And today we're going to begin, as I said, a series of messages on the New Testament biography that we call the Gospel of Mark. You would think that with Mark being the second Gospel written, it would get more attention than it gets, but it seems to not be the case, and you may wonder why. Uh, Well, I can't assure you as to why, but I'm guessing it's probably because Mark does not contain as many of what we call the discourses, these, uh, these teachings and sermons and parables that Jesus taught, doesn't have quite as many of them as the other Gospels have. It's primarily an action Gospel. Some have called it the Reader's Digest Gospel, short and to the point. Others have called it a newspaper edition, fast-paced, action-oriented. In fact, the word immediately appears over 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately Jesus went and did this, and then immediately Jesus went and did that. And you see that 40 times throughout, uh, throughout Mark's Gospel. You know, in the ancient Roman world, large numbers of people were, were illiterate. Hard for us to imagine today here in America because virtually everybody reads at least reasonably well. But there were large numbers of the working class and slaves in the Roman Empire who were illiterate or barely literate, could hardly read. And when Mark wrote his gospel to in Rome to Roman followers of Jesus and to whoever else, whoever else they could reach with the gospel of Jesus, they were for the most part very poor readers if they could read at all. So the scriptures were generally read to them out loud in groups of people. So Mark writes the story of Jesus like a fast-paced story that would hold your interest when it's read to you out loud. The Reader's Digest style gospel. This morning we're going to read just the first eight verses. And we'll, uh, Lord willing, take this apart in pieces for you as we take a look at it. So the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we're just going to read the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. In the the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. 
Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The key word in verse 1, of course, is the word gospel. It's a very familiar word to us. We, we uh, refer to it uh, often as the first four books in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. We may talk about gospel music or gospel preaching, or we may say, trying to emphasize a point, it's the gospel truth to emphasize that we are correct in what we're expressing. But in, in the New Testament, the word gospel is never a reference to a book or to music. The word gospel in the New Testament always refers to the message of salvation. It's always good for us to study where these important words come from and how the original readers of the New Testament would understand them. There's no definition of the, of the word gospel given here. So how would Mark's readers in the first century, how would they have understood this word? The Greek word simply means a, a, a message of joy or good news or an exciting message. And you remember, of course, that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And about 200 years before Christ, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. And there was a word in the book of Isaiah, it's in chapter 40, chapter 42, and chapter 52, a, a Hebrew word in, in the book of Isaiah, talking about the coming of Christ, that expressed the good news that the Lord God was going to come and rule the earth. He was going to bring in peace and righteousness and give hope and blessing to all in his kingdom. And so when Isaiah was translated into Greek, they used this word gospel to express that thought. Interestingly, in the Roman world, when Caesar Augustus, who was the ruling Caesar when Jesus was born, when he ascended the throne as emperor, there was a big proclamation made about him that was read all over the empire on his birthday, and he said he would do the work of a savior, he would make war cease, he would create order everywhere. It is now the arrival of a god. Of course, they worshipped their emperors in the Roman, in, in the Roman era. And the, the, the good news was that Caesar Augustus has arrived, and, and they actually used the word gospel to proclaim this happy time that now Caesar Augustus was going to solve all the problems of Rome, and he would ascend the throne in great victory. And so when Mark uses this word, the, the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, and the Romans who knew nothing of the Old Testament, they would both see that word, gospel, as announcing the arrival of a new king who was going to bring in a new era, a new time. And this new era was going to be a time of order and peace and salvation and blessing. So the Holy Spirit directs, uh, directs Mark to use this word that both Jew and Gentile would understand. That he is about to write the history of a new king. The beginning of the good news about the new king is about to be told, Mark is saying. It's the beginning of the story because, as you well know, the story is still being written. The message is still being proclaimed. The king has not fully taken his throne yet, but he's going to be an eternal king. 
So Mark begins his historical account of the life of Jesus with this language that would make his Roman readers know that the new and glorious king has come, and this is only the beginning of his story. And what's his name, Mark says? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is his earthly human name. If you went back to the Old Testament, it would be Yahashua or Yeshua. means Yahweh saves in Hebrew. In Greek, it came into the Greek language as Iesus, which traveled down the family tree of language and came to us in the English name Jesus. Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one, the, the promised savior. Came into Greek as Christos, and of course down to us as the word Christ. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, his earthly name. Christ, his, his, his divine title. Then in a rapid fire sort of way, Mark gives us three snapshots regarding the gospel news about the king. I call them snapshots because Mark doesn't get into long, extensive detail. He kind of gives it to you, bang, 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 as we'll see as we read through the gospel of Mark in these coming weeks and months. He doesn't give long, extended discourses. He just kind of gives it, here's the snapshot, bang, let's move to the next thing, let's move to the next thing. It appealed to the Romans, probably appeals to lots of Americans too. If you said to your, your husband and your wife, let me read you something. One of their questions might be, okay, how long is it? Because we want it fast. Give it to me. Bang, 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 bang. That's the way Mark wrote. And so he gives us three little, three little snapshots regarding the good news about the new king. The first one is the forerunner of the king. Secondly, the preparation for the king. And then thirdly, the majesty of the king. And I'll give those to you again as we work through them. First of all, the forerunner of the king. He says in verse 2, it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. When you think about this, this forerunner of the king, remember this coming king was not an afterthought in God's great plan for the world. God didn't decide that the world had gotten so bad that he had to step in and do something. This was his plan before creation. As First Peter and the book of Revelation tell us, that Jesus was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. God had the death of Christ and his salvation of the world planned before he ever even laid the foundation of the world. And Mark tells his Roman readers that not only was the king promised, but the one who would announce his coming was promised. This was normal practice in the ancient world. Every king announced his arrival. Every king sent someone ahead to make sure the roadway was clear and, and, and safe and to announce to those along the way that he was about to make his entrance. Mark quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3. And he puts those two together in those verses there, uh, the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. Uh, the, actually, behold a messenger, I will send a messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, is from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight, is from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And he directly connects those prophecies to John, that we call John the Baptist. Technically, uh, it would be more correct to call him John the Baptizer, uh, because Baptist simply means one who baptizes. 
We'll talk about the baptism issue in more detail next week when we examine the baptism of the Lord Jesus. But John was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. He was preparing the way for his ministry. He was calling people to repentance and telling them the king is coming, the king is coming, the Messiah is about to arrive on the scene. You better get ready for him because you need to repent. Now Mark Mark tells us that John dressed like a prophet. He lived in the desert. He ate locusts and wild honey. When I say dressed like a prophet, he's wearing wearing clothing made out of camel hide. And uh, as we read through the book of Leviticus and we see all of the all of the Mosaic law comparing uh, on their dietary laws, locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers were the only insects that could be eaten according to the law of Moses. Sharing that with my wife a couple of days ago, I said, you know, if you lived under the law of Moses, you could still eat locusts, grasshoppers, and crickets. She was unimpressed. She said, I cannot understand why anybody anywhere on the entire planet would be interested in eating insects of any kind. But you know, the scientists tell us that they are a good protein source, and after the legs and wings are removed, they can be eaten dried, roasted, or boiled. I don't know how John ate them. Maybe John roasted them and dipped them in honey. He said he ate locusts and wild honey. Maybe he roasted the locusts and then dipped them in honey. That might make them palatable, maybe. But, it, but he lived a rugged life. He was out in the desert. He, he wore camel hide clothing, eating locusts and wild honey. And when, and when we see him mentioned in the other Gospels, we recognize that he was a preacher of judgment. Growing up down south, and I know you've heard the phrase, but growing up down south, they talked about certain preachers having a lot of hellfire and brimstone. That's the way John was. He was a prophetic Old Testament style preacher. He called people out right on the spot. There's one instance there, in, in, not in Mark, but in one of the other Gospels where a bunch of the Pharisees came out to the Jordan River to see where, where John was, what was, what was going on, what, where John was preaching. John sees the group of Pharisees over in the, in, in the corner and he says, You den of snakes, you brood of vipers. He said, Why would you come out here? Are you, are you trying to flee from the wrath to come? He yells across to these Pharisees out there. So I mean, he, he was definitely not politically correct. And, and, and so John preaches this. He says he came baptizing in wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. The second snapshot Mark gives us, which we'll talk about here in just a second, with is the preparation for the king, which is this baptism of repentance. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Remission there just simply means to take away or to remove. Now that may seem very ordinary to us. But to Jewish people of his day, this message was absolutely revolutionary. And the reason why it was was this. was under the law of Moses, there were ceremonial washings that the Jewish people observed at different times. But the only people who were actually immersed in water, which is what the word baptizo means in the Greek language, means to plunge into or to put under or to immerse. The only people who were actually immersed in water in a ceremonial fashion were Gentiles who wanted to join Judaism. They called it proselyte baptism. And they they had perhaps these uh, Gentiles, and we see them appear a few times in the New Testament as well, They had come to believe that the God of Israel was the true and living God, and they wanted to be a part of the Jewish religion. 
And, and so for John to come to Jewish people and preach this message about baptism was really quite radical. Because he was telling the Jewish people of his day that they were no more ready for the coming Messiah than a Gentile was. He was saying that the promised king, the Messiah, the Savior was coming. And he said, if you want to be ready for the coming Savior and king, then you must repent of your sin and you must make a public statement that you have repented by submitting to a ceremony that for the last 1,500 years has only been reserved for Gentiles. Now, to a first century Jew, that was a radical message. Apparently, there were massive groups of Jewish people who were leaving the cities. <clears throat> they were going down by the Jordan River to find John and to hear him preach and be baptized. They were confessing their sins and repenting and were, uh, were pre uh, preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. And, of course, you know, to repent doesn't mean that I cry and feel bad. To, to repent means I change my mind about what I'm doing. That we won't get into a, we will talk about repentance more in upcoming weeks, but just as a, just as a footnote, I think some of you probably understand that term. Uh, the, the Greek term actually means to change your mind. That is, you change your thinking about what you're doing and how you're living. You change your mind. You go a different direction. That's what repent means. A lot of people feel very badly about something they did. And they may weep and cry and feel bad and feel guilty and all that. That's not, that's not Bible repentance. Bible repentance is when I say, I know I'm a sinner. I know what I'm doing is wrong. I'm changing my mind about it. I'm going a different direction. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And, and, and so John says, I'm preaching this baptism of repentance. Not that the baptism makes you repent, but that the baptism was a sign that you had repented. Because if you repent, then you can receive the forgiveness of sins. And so John comes along with, the, first of all, he talks about the, the, these prophecies about the king coming. Now this is the preparation for the Messiah to come. You repent of your sin and confess your sin and turn to the Lord. And, and as an outward sign of that, you are immersed in water. Then the third snapshot is the majesty of the king. Because as John is preaching here, look at verse 6 again. John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, You come to hear me preach? You submit to baptism in the Jordan River because you respect my message. You believe that I'm a real prophet of God. But, and I said, and he said, I, I am. But this king who is about to appear is mightier than me. And he is so mighty that I am not even worthy to kneel down and untie his sandals. He said, I am immersing you in water. But he is going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Everything is about to change. And John says, you better get ready. He said, I'm going to fade into the background and Jesus is going to come to the foreground. John was pointing people to Jesus. You know, only Jesus Christ can take you into his kingdom. Repentance and forgiveness are just the beginning of God's work in our lives. This work is only done through the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we receive from God when we come to the Lord Jesus for, for forgiveness. 
Large numbers of people were coming to hear John preach. Apparently many of them were submitting to the ceremony of baptism as a sign that they had truly repented. They were hopeful. They were excited. They were looking for the long-awaited Messiah. And you know, those Bible themes of hope and repentance and confession and forgiveness, they are all throughout the Scripture, and they are still with us today. We cannot receive these things from the Lord, hope and repentance and confession and forgiveness. We cannot receive those things from the Lord without an attitude of submission, without a recognition of our need and our need for forgiveness. So let me ask you, where are you today? What is your need? Can you hear the message of John calling to you? Are you burdened by sin? Do you sense a need to truly repent? Is it your desire to get down to business with God and be honest before Him? John's message is as relevant today as it was then. Repentance is still the door through which we must walk in order to seek the Lord and in order to receive His forgiveness. John's message calls us to to confront and confess our sin and to turn away from it in sincere repentance, to receive God's forgiveness, and most importantly, to look to the Lord Jesus. God will meet you there. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will make you His child. As James chapter 4 and verse 8 tells us, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's John's message that he's preaching to us today. May God help us to do so. Let's pray. Lord, we know John preached a revolutionary message in his day. And for many folks, this is a revolutionary message even today. So much of our society and even so many of our churches across this land tell folks to try to be good and try to do certain ceremonies and try to do this, that, and the other. And if I I can keep the list, and if I can be righteous on the outside, then somehow God will take up the slack and I'll get to heaven some way. And yet, the Lord, this revolutionary message that John came to preach, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Turn from your sin. Confess your sin to God. Submit to Him and what He wants us to do. No, those are radical thoughts for many folks today. And Lord, even we who know You as our Savior, we still struggle through our lives. We still struggle with the indwelling sin. We still struggle with attitudes of heart and thoughts we should not have. We still are very self-focused in many, many ways. And Lord, even we who truly know you as our Savior, we need to take some time to repent. We need to learn to focus on what we are and the direction that we're going. And we need to get lined up and come back in line with you. Lord, I pray that we will heed the message of John. And as we look through this wonderful short gospel, the gospel of Mark in these coming months, May our hearts be blessed and refreshed and strengthened. And may we come away from this study stirred for the Lord Jesus Christ, truly knowing Him as our Savior and ready to serve Him 
as best we can. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if we could just sing uh, an old, old song that uh, we have done many, many times. Uh, Amazing Grace. I did not get the number, but uh, I know that you, I know that you know it quite well. So, let's just sing the first verse together. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Twas blind, but now I see. Lord, may that be the prayer of our hearts as we rejoice in your amazing grace. That you reach down to us, you grabbed a hold of us. You broke our hearts, you brought us into submission to you and made us realize what we are and what you are and how much we need you. How amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. May we pray that each day this week, Lord, with true sincerity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you for being here today. So thankful to see you. Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday.